Warning, the following podcast has been cobbled together from a string of non-sequiturs and half-drunk ramblings. Across four attempts. And through two countries and hemispheres. While hopped up on antibiotics and opiates. Woohoo! Warning, science ahead may cause drowsiness. <laughs> Warning, limited penis talk. Warning. The science has prevented any misogynistic jokes. <laughs> Warning, I don't come across as particularly intelligent in this podcast. Warning, I come across as an arrogant bastard. <laughs> that should that warning should go without saying. That should, that should be an every, that should be the name of the podcast. <laughs> arrogant <laughs> Bastard. arrogant bastard. Irrebastardology. <laughs> Irrebastardosity. <laughs> there we go. 2.0. Excellent. <laughs> My wife just walked in and said, there's people that listen to this? <laughs> Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosity, the one true podcast, and the only podcast to uh, spontaneously pop into existence with no prior living podcast. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. I came from meat. Decaying meat? I just popped out of decaying meat. Well, we're going to talk about spontaneous generation uh, for this one, but first... Yeah. But first... We should know that I picked abiogenesis. Abiogenesis? Abiogenesis. Therefore, the, pe the people picked <laughs> um, fundamental Mormonism. Mormonism? What's that, What's that religion called? <laughs> Hell if I know. And you have overruled all of us. Yes, yeah, so we're going to do spontaneous generation instead. So fuck everybody. <laughs> Uh, when can I make the joke? I just had a spontaneous generation in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting to it. Oh, too soon. Uh, first, let's do... What were we calling it? Tyler's Uncircumcised Penis of the Week? I thought it was a Tyler's Circumcised Penis of the Week. Oh, Tyler's Circumcised Penis. Uh, let's forget that and do... In honor of spontaneous generation... Let's do Kirk Hastings' Leaky Sphincter of the Week. Oh, Leaky Sphincter. Excellent. He's always evacuating his bowels in some way or another. All over Facebook, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and essentially to himself. Uh, who do we have? Don't you have a candidate this time for Kirk Hastings' Leaky Sphincter of the Week? I do have a Leaky Sphincter candidate. It's... Uh... It's the new Pope, Pope uh, Francis. Francis? Jorge Mario Bergoglio? Bergoglio? He's brand new. What could he possibly have done to deserve being called a leaky sphincter of the week? Well, he's been accused of uh, being in, involved in the abduction of two Jesuit priests by the military dictatorship in Argentina during the uh, junta that took place down there. Although, it should be noticed under Argentine law, you can file an accusation with very low 
special evidence. <laughs> However, um, I think the, the big complaint is that um, during the period of the dictatorship in Argentina, the Catholic Church pretty much did nothing. Nothing, Chuck. So That's Kidnapping, killing thousands. Yeah, they pretty much practiced doing nothing during the whole Hitler thing, right? Just kind of sat by, shook Hitler's hand, made an accord with him, nothing. So this is nothing new for them. They only really get actively involved when uh, they molest children and then uh, need to cover it up. Right. These are old guys. you gotta give them, you got to give them time to kind of sit back and relax, right? They're not young anymore. Right. Yeah, you don't just... You don't just get a leaky sphincter like right away. It takes years of uh... years and years. <laughs> uh, how do Who they, do you got? <laughs> how, do they, how do they select a pope anyway? How do they select the pope? They're all in this building, lock themselves up in a building, and then every once in a while, some black smoke comes out, and then when the pope is selected, some white smoke comes up. Is that? Yeah, I think so. It's uh, they have their vote, and if they don't all agree, then then they. They put out the black smoke. Although, really, do we have to know that? Can't you just just tell, tell us, us when you decided? <laughs> Once again, we have not decided. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Uh, I really want to know what goes on behind those closed doors, right? Oh, I mean, you know, like they're just they're just comparing their scorecards. <laughs> eeny, meeny, molester, Nazi. Right. Uh, been there, done that. Let's let's choose a guy from South America. We haven't done that before. That's a first, and he's a Jesuit. And he's a Jesuit. So he's been educated uh, in Catholicism extensively his entire life, right? And that's what they do? I guess. That and the children thing. So they get by in closed doors, molest a bunch of kids, and then whoever molests the most children... It's the the winner! (laughs) Actually, I think it's the black smoke. Is the uh, is the choices made? I have no idea. I, I I'm not Catholic. <laughs> Isn't it white smoke? Wouldn't that be pure smoke? Or is that is that my Mormon background? Yeah, that's just your privilege speaking. That's just the, um, <laughs> white and delightsome smoke coming out of the Pope's right orifice. So yeah, the black smoke is the uh, is they have conducted a secret ballot. And then someone receives a vote of two thirds plus one, and oh no, I'm sorry, you're right. <laughs> the black smoke. I was right. White smoke means new pope. The dark and loathsome smoke comes out when they haven't made a choice, and the white and delightsome smoke comes out when they did. I'm gonna go back to shutting up again. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, what the fuck do I know? <laughs> oh God. Uh, yeah, fantastic. So, oh. there you have it. Pope Pope Francis of Assisi. That's what he's named <laughs> after, right? The uh, the dude who um, gave up Scared all away the snakes. St. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick? That would oh, be cool. Right. That would be cool. I'm Pope Patrick. <laughs> Pope Patrick. Have a drink. <laughs> Francis of Assisi. I think gave up all his earthly belongings and just was a... Like an hermit, I think. That's right, because this new pope is—he's uh, the humble pope. He takes yeah. the bus, I think. Yeah, right. And he's he's just, <laughs> he'll walk around in this dirty robe that he's been wearing for fifty years, and won't wear any fancy hats anymore. He gets his red pope shoes at Payless. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> new pope. New pope. 
Same as the old Pope. Yeah, pretty much same as the old Pope. <laughs> All right, should we get into uh, spontaneous generation, or should we complain more about our listeners? <laughs> Let's complain about our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> those people suck. Fuckers. What? What is with those people? I mean, we say penis a couple. I mean, sure, it's it's fun. You know, we had a laugh. Penis. But Jesus Christ, they went on the. They really went off on the penis. They talked about penises for way too long. I thought we have to introduce the equivalent amount of vagina talk. Matt, um, they accused us of cheating by looping the penis talk every three minutes. But what actually happened was we said the exact same thing every three minutes. That's right. I dare anybody to prove otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about vaginas? The equivalent amount of vagina talk, Chuck. 20 minutes of vagina talk? No, I no. I can uh, do it. You know, vaginas are only worth, they're not worth as much as penis. Haven't you been watching the news? That, that's right. <laughs> that's right. According to Jews, it takes uh, two women or three women to, to be the equivalent witness of one man. So, is that... At least that? half, I think. So, <laughs> so maybe just 10 minutes talking about vaginas. Vagina. Vagina. All right, no. Vagina, vagina, <laughs> vagina, vagina, vagina. Vagina. Vag. Ina. Choach. Choach? <laughs> I don't know. I saw it on Saturday Night Live. Choach. All right, now loop it up. We're done. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we have reached new heights of laziness. All right, spontaneous generation. God, this has been pissing me off for years, Matt. Spontaneous gen- fucking creationists. Oh, I thought you just meant spontaneous generation in general. Oh yeah, <laughs> Fuck pissing me generation. off. Ever since I heard about it in high school biology. Yeah. What about the creationists? Well, they always give you this little uh, syllogism, right? So uh, it goes like this: if the theory of evolution cannot explain the origin of life then evolution is false. Louis Pasteur disproved spontaneous generation in the 1800s. Therefore, evolution is false. So evolution is spontaneous generation. Got it. Yeah, well, evolution, they say, needs to be started somewhere. So if it doesn't explain the origin of life, then clearly it's a terrible theory. It's false. So immediately there there are two problems with this. Um, But I'm going to give our... Vagina listeners, uh, vagina. several minutes to think about this syllogism, and I'm sick of doing all the work for you fuckers. Think about it and get back to me on why that's wrong. You're giving them homework? That's my new policy. I'm just going to talk, and then they can figure all this shit out themselves. Fuck you. <laughs> A five-minute podcast. <laughs> Go do it yourself. We'll loop it. <laughs> loop it. Well, loop it live. <laughs> I don't know. All right. But let's talk about spontaneous generation. So in light of that creationist syllogism, uh, let's talk about uh, what spontaneous generation actually is, its history, and how it came to be disproven. Take it away, Matt. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, spontaneous generation is an obsolete body of thought and the ordinary formation of living organisms without descent from similar organisms. How's that? Well, we need to fill about 45 more minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, 
I was prepared for abiogenesis. Can I go ahead with my Star Trek quotes? Yes. <laughs> Where do you want to start with spontaneous generation? Would you like to start with Aristotle? Did you say abiogenesis? <laughs> A fucking Irish uh, stripper. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Hi. <laughs> Stick a dollar in it, laddie. <laughs> uh, sure. Let me let me let me take over the podcast again. <laughs> All right. So, um, probably the first person to talk about spontaneous generation was the Greeks. Oh, fucking Greeks! They're always making shit up, like mythology. Mythology. They made that stuff up. Anaximander proposed that the universe and life itself evolved from an unbounded potential that he called a pyron. This is sort of this unbridled chaos from which everything emerged. He thought that, that life itself originated from the action of the sun on the ocean, so in the little slime on the beach, uh, it got heated up, and then uh, organisms popped up out of that. Humans were probably originally a type of fish. And he reasoned that because we were born all weak and shitty and had to be taken care of, we couldn't possibly have started out that way. Otherwise, we would have died. So we had to start out like a fish. So I think we were like a, a human-like fish born inside the mouth of another fish. Sweet. I mean, and then that's pretty much true. So that stopped all thought from there on out and uh, done. Done. <laughs> that was proven. Wet slime. No observation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. He's just kind of postulating. But this was a huge break with the tradition of everyone saying that, that God started it, right? It was started right. by divine intervention or a fucking cosmic egg or whatever. This was an attempt to propose the origin of life in the universe completely through natural means. So, huge break, and, and like I said, the, probably the first time in history. Anaximenes thought that air was the element where life came from, instead of water. And uh, they kind of argued back and forth. I think a lot of the people thought probably it was water. Um, but think about that, that those two things when we get into the experiments later on that, that happened in the 1700s and 1800s. Aristotle then came along. Uh, he believed in a sort of vitalism, where there's a life force that makes living matter fundamentally different than non-living matter. He thought that living beings were composed of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, plus an animating force he called pneuma. That's anima in Latin, which essentially meant soul. Pneuma? Is it, I thought that was a breath of life. Right. Um... I think that's probably where he got it from, right? This animating force. So we breathe, so we breathe in and out. And that's also where certain souls uh, or certain cultures think that when you sneeze, your soul can come out. So that's why you cover your mouth. Ah, uh, yes. Catch your soul. <laughs> Catch your soul. Prevent the devil from entering. Uh, Aristotle wrote in History of Animals, So with animals, some spring from parent animals, according to their kind whilst others grow spontaneously and not from kindred stock. And of these instances of spontaneous generation, some come from putrefying earth or vegetable matter, as is the case with a number of insects, while others are spontaneously generated in the inside of animals out of the secretions of their several organs. 
you could see you could see how if you live by the shore, how you might think that uh you know so like clout, clams, scallops, you know barnacles just appear and grow. Yeah, um, Aristotle was an observationalist, so he went out and observed uh, instead of just kind of sitting around and theorizing on his ass like an Aximander, fucking fat ass <laughs> bastard. Uh, so, yeah, if you don't see the animals mating, then, uh, you know, suddenly it grows fatter and squirts out another animal. Or you can see in decaying branches, you know, insects are popping up or meat, that sort of thing. Uh, so, it's, it, you're right, it's easy to come to that conclusion. Uh, now, Aristotle thought that this um, spontaneous generation was ongoing, uh, always happening. Uh, and this actually was pretty much commonly accepted wisdom until the 17th century. So the only real challenge to Aristotle in the West, Matt, was... In the West? Yes. Is it, uh, Sir Francis Bacon? The Bible. Oh. Son the Genesis account, where God spontaneously generated Adam from a lump of clay. That kind of, you know, that kind of fits with some of the early Greek uh, hypothesizing, though. You get your... Uh, Humans coming from lumps of clay, and uh, what is it in uh, Egyptian mythology that uh, the first people were formed from uh, mashed papyrus or <laughs> something? <laughs> They're probably shit out of alligators on the banks of the Nile. Right. I don't know. But yeah, you can see why, um, I guess, the Jews thought lumps of clay might have been in. You can pretty much mold it into whatever you want. There's also a story of the golem, right? This uh, quarter living servant... Uh, Made out of clay. And that fits uh, with uh, some of the theories of abiogenesis, Matt. That was probably God inspiring these people um, about the catalysis of certain uh, reactions on clays. I think so. No. No. Okay. (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, So that gets us to, what, the 1600s, 17th century. So um, there is a Belgian naturalist... Jan Baptiste von Helmont, who wrote in the 1600s, If one stuffs a soiled shirt into the mouth of a jar containing grains of wheat, the ferment released from the soiled shirt combining with the odor of the grain transmutes the mixture into mice in about 21 days. So that's a recipe for mice. I thought that was a recipe for beer. <laughs> if, you want, <laughs> if you want mice, stuff a soiled shirt into the mouth of a jar containing grains of wheat and stick it in a closet and... Inside of a month, you end up with a bunch of mice. And I'm, so he, I'm sure he did that, right? He put yeah, some I'm, jars in his closet. <laughs> right. This is <laughs> this is the result of scientific experimentation. Bam! Mice. Mice. <laughs> so uh, in 1668, Francisco Reddy, who oh. was a, a Tuscan physician. I know this guy. What did he do? He did the Francisco Reddy experiment. Yes, he did. <laughs> Obviously. Coincidentally enough, he did the experiment that bears his name. He is often credited as being the first scientist to conduct a controlled experiment. Yes. Yes. This, this kind of is modern science here. This is pretty cool. So what he did was uh, he wrote a book called Experiments on the Generation of Insects. So he wrote, I began to believe that all worms found in meat derived from flies and not from putrefaction. I was confirmed by observing that before the meat became wormy, there hovered over it flies of that very kind that later bred in it. Belief unconfirmed by experiment is vain. I love that. That's going to be my motto from now on. (laughs) Belief unconfirmed by experiment is vain. 
Can I get that tattooed on my ass? <laughs> In Latin. Right next to your irreligiosity tattoo. That's right. Did you put that picture up, by the way? A real should. thing. I should. Therefore, I put a dead snake, some fish, and a slice of veal in four large, wide-mouthed flasks. These I closed and sealed. Then I filled the same number of flasks in the same way, leaving them open. So he's got a fucking control. I love it. Flies were seen constantly entering and leaving the open flasks. The meat and fish in them became wormy. In the closed flasks, there were no worms, though the contents were now putrid and stinking. Outside, on the covers of the closed flask, a few maggots eagerly sought some crevice of entry. <laughs> <laughs> Thus, the flesh of dead animals cannot engender worms unless the eggs of the living be deposited therein. That is so fucking awesome. So what he did was he put a bunch of flasks uh, open to the air and allowed flies to come in and out. And the other flask he covered with some cloth so that air could still get through, but the flies couldn't contact the meat. And bam, there you go. No spontaneous generation of maggots inside the covered flasks. Genius! But they did stink. Yes, they still stunk. They putrefacted. I wonder if he got around the putrefaction. Just flies, though. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good first controlled experiment. Yeah, that's an impressive experiment. He putrefied... Uh, I wonder why... <laughs> a slice of veal, he says. <laughs> a dead snake, you know. <clears throat> Some fish and a slice of veal. Because... Yeah, veal's delicious. I mean, you don't want to waste that in an experiment. I bet that was his lunch, and he just forgot. He's like, <laughs> these first three are the experiment, and this last one's my lunch. <laughs> oh, I've got some veal packed up into my lunch sack. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, my God. So that pretty much wrapped up the spontaneous generation for big things, macroscopic things like insects, maggots, and worms. Uh, but, Matt, the 17th century also saw the invention of the microscope. So the battle shifted to whether or not these newly discovered microorganisms spontaneously generated. These infusoria, or animalcules, I think they were called. <laughs> Those words are far too big for me. So people who believed in spontaneous generation, the, the vitalism proponents thought that microscopic organisms popped into existence all the time. And, you know, every fucking thing you looked at under the microscope had a bunch of these little organisms all over it. Opponents claimed that these organisms just contaminated experiments. So, in the 18th century, Lazaro Spallanzani experimented with soup broths. Soup broths? Yeah, he boiled them in uh, sealed flasks in all the soup broth, so it had, you know, air and life-giving nutrients inside the broth. Uh, but when it was boiled in a sealed flask, it remained sterile. If you boiled it but left it unsealed, the solution rapidly became cloudy due to the presence of these mystifying animalcules. I'm starting to think all these guys just did their experiments around lunchtime. <laughs> well, he was challenged by John Needham, who experimented using hot mutton gravy. <laughs> These fuckers, I think you're right. They're probably just eating a sandwich and just decide to experiment on it. Right. Hot mutton gravy. So clearly he's an Englishman. No one else eats hot mutton gravy. I think their wives were catching them at lunchtime. Get to work. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm working. I'm working. It's right here. So, uh, Needham saw that boiling did kill microbes, so uh, score one for 
Spallanzani. But, he said, microbes quickly appeared after the gravy cooled, and he concluded that this was due to spontaneous generation. Uh, Spallanzani countered that the new microbes were due to contamination, and so he carried out an experiment where he pumped the air out of his flasks and then boiled the water. No new microbes formed. Needham countered, well, the life force was carried by the air, not the water. <laughs> so, the air is infused with this vital force, and if you pump that out of the solution, then of course you won't get any spontaneous generation. So, this brings up a thorny situation here. How in the fuck do you distinguish between the air carrying microbes or the air carrying vital force? Miasma theory. <laughs> no? <laughs> Bad air. Because uh, every time you have air, you have microbes, right? Right. So, it took the genius of Louis Pasteur, who the creationists worship as an idol. Pasteur, Pasteur. Who's that guy again? Some French dude. Came up with pasteurization, fucking vaccines. Oh, he's the milk guy. One of the greatest scientists of the 19th century. Never heard of him. Finally resolved the issue in 1861 by boiling broths in uh, flasks with long curved necks. So he'd boil it, and he'd allow it to be exposed to the air, but the, that long curve would allow air transport, but not heavy microorganisms. You know, really? Yes. They couldn't get, you couldn't get a, it was just, it was an open flask, essentially, right? Yes, but the, um, the neck of the flask kind of curved, and so there was a steep uphill gradient to it. So the air could move but the bacteria would be stuck in that little curve. Okay. Uh, so he um, carried out these experiments, and the solutions remained sterile, uh, which brought Pasteur to conclude that only microbial contamination, not spontaneous generation, led to new microbial growth. So this led to the, you know, all cells from cells, or all life from prior life idea. Uh, the law of biogenesis. Right, which is not a law. Omne vivum ex vivo. The yes. law is right there in the title, Chuck. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> it's not the suggestion of biogenesis. Look, I've got this book. It tells me right here. Is it What is Truth? It, it is. How did you know that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I got the law of biogenesis wrong. It's like begets like. Yes, that's the law of biogenesis. Like begets like. Uh, so... Um, as an aside, Matt, um, once Pasteur's experiments <laughs> were made public, I think in the, the 1980s, like his journals became public, it turned out that only 10% of his uh, experiments with these flasks were sterile. He threw out 90% of his experiments because he thought they were contaminated. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, he came to the right conclusion... But uh, if he would have just accepted the results of his experiments, it would have led him to spontaneous generation. But instead, he fucking crossed out 90% of the trials that he did. Oh, gosh. I mean, God. So, fuck you, Pasteur. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Asshole. So really, he did nothing. Is that what you're telling yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, essentially. He cherry-picked his data. Well, then now what do we do? Now, spontaneous generation hasn't been disproved. We're fucked. But Pasteur stated... <clears throat> La génération spontanée est une chimère. 
if anybody speaks French. Let us know, I'm, please. I'm so sorry. <laughs> call, call into the show and let us know what the fuck that meant. So where do we move on from there? Well, look, now we know that what Pasteur did, so we can come back to the creationist syllogism. Again, first premise, if the theory of evolution cannot explain the origin of life, then evolution is false. Second premise, Louis Pasteur disproved spontaneous generation in the 1800s. Conclusion, therefore evolution is false. Two problems with that. Number one, the origin of life is irrelevant to evolution. Doesn't matter. Evolution assumes the first cell. Once you have the first cell, evolution occurs, whether God created it or whether it spontaneously generated or et cetera, et cetera. So the syllogism falls apart. Uh, number two, Pasteur never ruled out all cases of, of spontaneous generation or abiogenesis everywhere. Neither did anyone else. What they did was they proved that complex molecules or insects or maggots don't pop into existence fully formed. That's it? That's it. That's it? The most that they can be said is they strongly confirmed the hypothesis that modern life in ordinary circumstances do not routinely arise from non-living matter. So the, you can't get shit from mutton gravy? Uh, <laughs> not unless shit is already there or it gets contaminated with it. Okay. So... Now, well, when they were arguing about spontaneous generation, or when spontaneous generation was believed and commonly accepted, questions about the origin of life never came up, right? There was never any deep thought about how life arose, because we just assumed that life was arising continuously. But now that um, spontaneous generation been disproven, the immediate question is, if, if, if all cells come from prior cells... You can trace that back all the way to the first cell. Where'd that come from? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Darwin speculated um, in a letter written to a friend of his in 1871. It is often said that all the conditions for the first production of a living organism are now present, which could ever have been present. But if, and oh, what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond... With all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc., present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes, at the present day such matter would be instantly absorbed, which would not have been the case before living creatures were found. That was Darwin's idea? 1871. The pond. About ten years after Pasteur's experiments. Warm little pond. So that's, that may be the first uh, idea about kind of modern origin of life theories. It's this little warm little pond. Soup. I mean, vagina. So I guess the question remains, if living matter isn't spontaneously generated, how did life arise in the first place? Leaky sphincter. But where did the sphincter come from? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> you and your logic. Checkmate. All right, Matt, so that is spontaneous generation in a nutshell. Shall we go directly on to abiogenesis? Yes, we shall. Hold on, let me get my radio voice prepared. <clears throat> Hello. Hello. Got it. All right. I'd like to point out that in the middle of this podcast, Matt took off out of the fucking country. <laughs> and while I attempted to uh, carry forth on my own, I just succeeded in boring the shit out of myself. <laughs> you suck. So you suck. now... Now I will bore the shit out of all the rest of you. That's right. Also, you should let it be known that a dog ate my hand 
as well. Yes, Matt uh, made the unfortunate decision to intervene into a dogfight. Was this some sort of crazy mongrel dog fighting <laughs> ring you run in your backyard? Uh, it was something me and Michael Vick used to do in my basement. But he quit unexpectedly. He just one day he was like, I can't do it anymore. Sorry. And for but, several um, <laughs> years he was uh, – <laughs> no one could find him anywhere. Right. <laughs> oh, no. My dog did not get along with this other dog. A, a pit bull, I believe they're called. And um, I just tried to drag her away, and instead I just put my hand in the pit bull's mouth, and then it would let go. There, that was a good call, I think. Yeah, it was. I was like, I shall distract you from attacking my dog by offering myself as a sacrifice, much like Jesus. It was, it was I was like, like that, Jesus. It was like that scene in Star Trek Six where uh, the Enterprise is getting the shit kicked out of it, and then Sulu shows up. Now we'll give them something else to shoot at. <laughs> Good job, Sulu. <laughs> I thought it was more like Jesus than Sulu, but I'll take either. You will take Sulu. <laughs> I will take Sulu. But I know a guy. He's a doctor. He stitched it up. Did a good job. Yeah, Matt shows up at my clinic with his hand partially amputated. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't usually resuture nerves, arteries, and veins, but uh, why not? What's the worst that could happen? You, I have you on tape saying, you, you don't need the hand to fly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can do it one-handed, right? I can. I can do it one-handed. Get it? <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Suddenly, I was 12 years old. Um, <laughs> although it's nicer if you, like, cup the balls with one hand and with the other. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Moving That's on. <laughs> typically what I do when I stitch my patients together. That's right. What are we talking about? I have no idea. What happened? What happened to this podcast? <laughs> I'm not done ruining it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see here. Oh, abiogenesis. You know, before we get into abiogenesis, why don't we cover some... So, you know, Matt, that we have the Church of Scientism, and uh, abiogenesis and evolution is our scientism creation myth. So let's go over some competing creation myths uh, that uh, should be taught in school. Let's do that. Creation myths. In case you didn't know, those are cultural, traditional, or religious myths would describe the earliest beginning. Fuck this shit. <laughs> no wonder I don't have it. a radio voice. <laughs> one sentence. You had one job. <laughs> A hold on, radio voice. <clears throat> a creation myth or creation story is a cultural, traditional, or religious myth which describes the earliest beginnings of the present world. Period. Yes, got it. Out. Cannot define <laughs> a word by using the same word. <laughs> a creation myth is a myth. What's wrong with that? The Bible's <laughs> true because it tells me so. So, Matt, you are, shall we say, an expert on creation myths, having studied Hastingsology and Hovindology and anthropology at that is, that is correct. That was my, um, what do you call it? The thing that you concentrate on. Major? No. I mean, yes, but. <laughs> no, not that. Anthropology hey, was my here. major and mythology was was my sub-discipline, I guess you could say. During your anthropology career, how many Tyrannosaurus rexes did you dig out of the ground? 
17. <laughs> All in my backyard. Utah <laughs> is full of T-Rex bones. That's right. So some creation myths are cosmological in nature and some are cosmogonical. And the only difference really there is that um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small difference. But basically some just explain the beginnings of the universe and the fate of the universe and some explain where everything came from. So, Which is cosmogonical? Cosmogonical, those are the myths that explains how everything began. So like like the world egg, you know. Some myths start with just uh, things. There's uh, there's entities that already exist, and they create the world, so you don't really know where the universe came from. So, so they just throw the the problem back one step. They do. So there's a, there's a bunch of subcategories. There's are types of myths of creation myths. You get your uh, like a, the basic types are the uh, creation for chaos, which means like you know in, in in the initial beginnings there was just a formless, shapeless expanse, a chaos. Uh, similar to um, the Jesus one, can't remember what that one's called, but um, the Bible, the 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 Genesis the myth, Bible? the Genesis myth. According to the Genesis myth, Earth created in six days. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the Greeks, the Greeks are a creation from chaos. The Enuma Elish, I believe you've heard of this one. No, I believe that was Babylonian creation myth. Yes, that is correct. Or possibly even the Sumerian creation myth. That is also creation from chaos. Very good. Um, you have one of my other favorites, which is uh, the Earth Diver myth. It's uh, it's kind of an odd one, but it's uh, basically they just have a common character, and it sends uh, an animal into you know a primordial, usually like a water or defined mud or something to build land. And uh, and then that's where the world comes from. These are these are mostly common in uh, Native American myths. Say is that similar to one of my personal favorites, the muff diving creation myth? It is not. No, that's where (laughs) a man enters completely foreign territory and is enclosed in absolute darkness and uh, hair. And then he creates fish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and then he pulls out a fish it's related to the holy diver myth which is uh the creation of the band dio so wait a second who the fuck is the diver <laughs> if the earth hasn't been created yet? chuck it's best not to ask these things <laughs> <laughs> it's it's basically it is a it is a creature that is the first to awaken and lays the necessary groundwork for uh, the rest of creation. So the creature just wakes up. He's like, "I think I'll go dive to the bottom of the ocean and grab some mud." Exactly, makes perfect sense. Listen, what about a cosmic egg creation myth? Cosmic egg creation myths. Yeah, because I always want to know who laid the cosmic egg. Who laid? He who dealt it laid it. <laughs> Where like the whole universe was once an egg. That's right. It's it's a pretty. That's a common one found across uh, a lot of different. Uh, basically, you get a. It's just a beginning, and a primordial being comes into existence and hatches from the egg, and then usually 
ejaculates all over the primordial waters of the earth. And that's where we come from. Well, that's pretty accurate, actually. Yeah. Um, that's that's in Egyptian mythology, uh, Chinese mythology. You get a little bit in uh, Finnish mythology. Perhaps you've read the Finnish epic Kalevala? Kalevala? Who hasn't? Yeah, really. Everybody, I think. Because the Finns, they represent. <laughs> the Finns. Um, there's an emergence type myth. That's where they emerge from. A, that's where the humanity basically comes from another world into this world, the one that we currently inhabit. And uh, the previous world is known as the womb of the, say, Earth Mother, you can call her. And uh, the process of emergence is like being born. It's like giving birth. Uh, this is another one that's that's pretty common in uh, Native American cultures. Like the Hopi or the Maya. So out of this Earth Mother womb, the species emerges? Out of the Earth Mother womb, the the people, they usually call themselves the people. The people emerge. So they a come primordial out. womb. Yeah, there's a primordial womb. There's a there's a previous world basically. Are they your primordial ovaries? There is primordial everything. You get primordial, primordial premenstrual cramps. <laughs> primordial penis. Primordial vas deferens. Um. <laughs> These people get smacked in the face with a penis on their way out. Everybody does that, I think. Everybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the coming of age ceremony. <laughs> and uh, let's see, we got a couple more. Ex nihilo. Are you familiar with this language? That means out of nothing. It's the um, Christian idea of where the universe. God just sort of spoke it, and there it was. That out is of correct. Nothing. The Bible, the Rig Vedas, uh, Egyptian mythology, the Quran. I guess that's sort of the Bible too. Um, certain animistic cultures. Although Judaism, uh, in the original translation, I guess. God kind of organized stuff out of pre-existent matter, right? Yeah, so in that case, um, the Jews are – that's just crazy. Uh, right. That's, that's, so, that's crazy, so man. So remember when, when Christians say, you can't create something out of nothing, and then out of the other side of their mouth, well, God snapped his fingers and created a bunch of shit out of nothing. Somehow that makes right. sense. <laughs> life something creating itself out of nothing. Comes no from life. No way. Right. That's that's the problem I have with um with the objection to uh to a natural universe that has always existed. Well what do you mean it's always existed? Yeah. Well what do you mean your gods always existed? What how do you have a problem with that? Like No, 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 no. That makes perfect sense. He's magic. Right. <laughs> oh boy. Finally the last one, Chuck. Um the world parent. This is uh Isn't that probably kind of like the World womb. Didn't we it's, just go over this? No, this is different. The world womb is where you get shit from one universe into your new universe. Or your oh. new... The world parent is... Uh, like in in Greek mythology, you, you start with a... You start with a, a set of entities that basically uh, end up breeding. Each each, yeah, they breed on until they breed... Like in Greek, cos- in Greek mythology, you start with... Uh, uh, who is it? Is it, is it Gaia and... Um, Kronos? I thought it was Uranus. <laughs> You're my anus. No, it's uh... <laughs> my anus. <laughs> my anus. Kronos. 
Is it Cronus? I'm, I'm a little out of the Didn't he groups. come out of the Titans or something like that? It's been a long time since I've read any Hesiod. Yeah, you okay, so very good. You begin with chaos and then you you go from chaos, out of that emerges Earth or Gaia and some other beings, I believe it's uh the Abyss or Tartarus, Erebus, maybe Eros too. He's one of the primary. Um and then she gives birth to Uranus, who fertilizes uh-huh. her back. I knew it. <laughs> I knew Uranus had to come in there somehow. <laughs> Uranus. We like to say Uranus. <laughs> she gives birth to Uranus. He fertilizes. It's like you have your baby, and then your baby, like, yeah, hey, since we're the only two around, <laughs> guess we'll have sex. I guess so. And then from there, you get the Titans, and then from there, it just Cyclops, and it just goes on from there. Um, and eventually, Zeus. And eventually, Zeus. And then my personal favorite, Pan. <laughs> Wasn't there a bunch of like eating children and then like Zeus escaped and then killed his dad or whatever? Yeah, they, you know, because that's how he that's how he became the Lord of the Gods, you know. Because they didn't want to, they didn't want their kids to overcome them, so they it just it, it eventually ended up eating them. Right. That's what that's what Cronus was used to. But Cronus' uh, wife or whatever you call her, his consort, Rhea. She took she took Zeus and wrapped him, um, or hit him, and uh, she put a stone in a baby's blanket and gave that to Kronos, and he just ate it. He just said he ate the stone. He could he not tell the, the difference between a stone and a kid. Right. I love the two choices. You got to either have sex with it or eat it. That's it. Or cut off their foreskin. That's or. the picture. <laughs> Wrap it up in a little blanket. So that's your that's your basic uh, creation myth introduction. Well, look, um, it's hard for science to battle against those awesome creation myths, but we have our own creation myth called abiogenesis. Life from lifelessness. Yes, it's basically the womb model with some science. With some science. Let's let's hear the science. All right, Matt. There are – so, you know, when when creations – here's the problem. Here's the setup. The creations will come up and they'll say, well, you have no idea. If there wasn't a God, then how do you explain life, right? Clearly, I've explained it very in, in excruciating detail by saying God magically created life. What's your fucking explanation? <laughs> you can't match that. That And without uh, uh, a theory of abiogenesis, evolution is worthless, right? That's the other thing, yeah. <laughs> Well, if evolution can't explain the beginning of life, then fuck that theory. (laughs) Fuck it in the ass. Um, I say no. I say evolution applies no matter what. Evolution applies as long as life exists. And how the life came to exist is not relevant to evolution. Right. Evolution, in order for natural selection, the driving force of evolution, to occur, it assumes the existence of a cell. Once the cell... A self-replicating cell exists, then evolution takes over. So abiogenesis, while perhaps a part of evolution, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an evolutionary scientist. It seems to me it'd be a little bit separate. That's more chemistry than uh, biology. But what the fuck do I know? That's a good point because that's 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 a problem I always have when I hear the uh, 
Like life can only come from life. You can't get life from non-life. All of everything is chemistry. Life is chemistry. Um, we just assign what what there's. Is there a line where we say something's alive and something's not? Is it is it replic? You know, have we decided that line? That's a very blurry line, and unfortunately, um, the more you research into this, the more blurry that line becomes. Is it a self-replicating? Uh, organism? Is it um, a series of metabolic cycles that replicate? It, you know, what, what, where are you going to draw the line? Is a virus alive? Is it not? A virus requires uh, a, another cell, essentially, to uh, create the proteins that it needs. So is that alive? But it does reproduce. It just needs a cell to do it. So, um, you know, is the Krebs cycle a living cycle if it continues to spin and, and uh, replicate? Uh, is it alive if if it's uh, you know it's subject to evolution, it's subject to natural selection. Um, there are very uh, uh, various other versions of the Krebs cycle, but but our Krebs cycle seems to be the most efficient. Um, so where yeah, I, I suppose you draw the line where the soul enters. So when that soul enters, then it's alive. The Krebs cycle, you say? That sounds interesting. Oh my God! <laughs> Fuck the Krebs cycle. <laughs> <clears throat> we'll get into it. Are there two models of abiogenesis? So this is the this is the response to that asshole creationist who wants to know, you know, what do you got? What's your explanation? Uh, this is it, fucker, and it's complicated. So I'm going to shove some science up you assholes. Uh, ass, I guess. Yes, and I'll yeah. take a nap for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so like it or not, here comes some fucking science. I'm going to issue a trigger warning for those who have post-traumatic stress disorder from high school chemistry. Uh Uh-oh. You have been warned. Children should probably leave the room. (laughs) Get thee gone! And this is why why it's hard hard to debate creationists on this shit. Um, We'll find that out very soon. Because, you know, how far do you want to go back? Do you honestly want to discuss the Krebs cycle and talk about the fucking dozen or so reactions that occur in there? All right, here we go. State of the art for abiogenesis: two models, metabolism first and genetics first. So, so it's kind of, you're kind of in a uh, chicken and egg scenario. Metabolism and genetics are so thoroughly intertwined that it's tough to imagine a world where they were ever separate. Like it's like you have your musculoskeletal system and you got your circulatory system, right? Right. They they're both independent and distinct, but they're so thoroughly intertwined and and, and interdependent on each other. It's it's hard to uh, it's hard to imagine when they were ever separate, or if they were separate. Uh, and it seems unlikely that the two systems would evolve at the same time, so one of them must have preceded the others. The question is which one and, and how. So metabolism basically is how you generate uh, energy and the organic molecules and precursors and building blocks of stuff that you need for yourself. Um, genetics, however, holds all of the information to transfer to your... <laughs> descendants, right? So if you gain all that stuff with metabolism, how are you going to pass the information off? Or you're you going to lose it. So, so metabolism first models point out that A, their chemistry is simpler. It's simpler than RNA, DNA, um, and all the proteins that are required to operate on it. Um, metabolic cycles can produce all kinds of organic molecules, as well as yield energy. And, and the, all the precursors to the metabolic cycles, like the Krebs cycle, are found in, in plausible prebiotic environments. So at the beginning of life, everything 
that we needed to, to start this cycle going was present. Nice. And RNA uh, has been notoriously difficult to form in the laboratory. The decades and decades of this stuff to try and, and, and form these molecules um, in a sort of plausible mechanism has failed. Although in 2009, they made a huge breakthrough. So that may not be, that objection seems to have fallen now as of about three, four years ago. Genetics first advocates point out that DNA, the only way to store information, right? So you can have all this shit. All, right. you, you've got these metabolic cycles. They're all catalyzed by proteins. So it's highly efficient uh, as it is now. Um, but if you build up this metabolic cycle and get it going, how in the world are you going to pass that information into the next generation of cells? Proteinoids. <laughs> oh, God, I'm Sidney Fox. <laughs> um, most origins researchers probably fall into the genetics first model because it's just so fucking complicated. The cell's so fucking complex, it's hard to understand how it could have built up uh, through a purely metabolism-only model. But let's talk about metabolism first. Okay. Let's talk about metabolism first. Yeah, first. First? First. First. Metabolism first models. Um, The core metabolic cycle inside the cell... The one that is at the heart of the metabolic cycle that kind of drives all the other uh, reactions and cycles is known as the Krebs cycle for the guy who worked out its details in the 1930s. Now, Hans Adolf Krebs uh, joined the he, – he was a German Jew. He joined the German army in 1932. He was actually appointed to the 13th Mechanized Infantry Division. But when the Nazi party came to power, uh, Jews weren't welcome in the army, so – he fled. <laughs> yeah. Hans they, Krebs. Sorry, Hans I like Krebs. that name. <laughs> there's, um, there's awesome, actually uh, another awesome German name, Gunter Vector Heuser. Oh, I love Gunter. Love it. Hello, uh, Anyway, yeah, there was a mass exodus of science, so fuck you, Nazis. We took your scientists. So this cycle, um, basically what it is, a series of, I don't know, like 10 or 12 reactions um, you can start the cycle at any point because it's a circle, but um, it's named after the citric acid. It's a citric acid cycle, right? Citric acid is a, a string of um, six carbon stringed together into a molecule. And what the, what the cycle basically does is it strips carbon off of that um, down to two or three uh, carbon molecule, and then it uh, you know spins off all these other organic molecules and those are the precursors to lipids and proteins and um, nucleotides uh, and also yields energy. I think it yields two ATP. Um, and then eventually it's, it's recombined into citric acid and the cycle starts all over again. So um, pretty much every uh, high school chemistry class and every fucking biochemistry class and organic chemistry, you got to memorize this fucking Krebs cycle and then promptly forget about it the next day after you've been tested on it. I have nightmares. Much like everything in high school. Oh, God. <laughs> nightmares, this fucking Krebs cycle. See, I don't um, recall it, like, at all. <laughs> That's how well I did chemistry. You remember the Krebs cycle, citric acid cycle? I remember the name. Fucking anthropologists. <laughs> we don't need your stupid Krebs cycle. We have pottery shards and... <laughs> Fossilized Bones. poop. <laughs> exactly. We have scat. So um, there are a couple problems with the metabolism first 
model. Even though, you know, um, deep inside the hydrothermal vents, you have carbon dioxide, hydrogen gas, uh, water, all the stuff that, that needs to, uh, that you need to start the cycle going. It's difficult to see how it starts because, uh, like I said, all of these steps in the modern cell are, are catalyzed by proteins that speeds up the reaction and uh, kind of make sure you, you get this reaction instead of one that would end the cycle, terminate the cycle. So the question is, how did this happen in the first place? Well, there's, a, uh, again, a German chemist, Gunther Vectorshäuser. Gunther. Wouldn't it be cool to have a name like Gunther Vectorshäuser? I think I'm going to change my name to Gunther Vectorshäuser. Isn't it Wachterschauser? That's how it's spelled. Wachterschauser? In, in the lecture I was listening to, it was, it was pronounced Vectorshäuser. Oh. I don't well, know any German, so... Um, well, how do you pronounce the A with two dots over it? Somebody, somebody do that in the comments. Well, there's a, there's a U with an umlaut and two A's with umlauts, and one of them is next to a U, so it's probably pronounced differently every single fucking time. So uh, if we have any Nazis in our audience, just let us know how that's pronounced. That's right. Gunter Vectorshäuser. I'm going to go put my money on Vectorshäuser. Uh, this guy proposed an iron sulfur world. So all of these are called worlds, right? You hear about the thioester world, the RNA world, the clay world. Uh, Gunter Vectortoyser proposed an iron sulfur world. Uh, This is the late 80s. It's a series of articles, I think, from 88 to 92, where he laid out specific reactions that would start this shit. It's it's a pretty impressive piece of work. Uh, He started with um, pyrotite, I think, which is an iron sulfur mineral. Um, it occurs in hydrothermal vents deep underneath the uh, ocean, kind of at the ocean floor where the um, continental plates are, are shifting back and forth and the magma is kind of spewing up into it, <clears throat> into the ocean. So he pointed out a reaction where a pyrotite reacts with hydrogen sulfide to form pyrite plus energy. Um, now he takes that energy immediately and uh, theorizes that would drive a reaction between hydrogen and the carbon dioxide to create formic acid. So this, um, this reaction has actually been confirmed in the laboratory. It actually happens. Um, and, and many other of his uh, hypothesized reactions, uh, including stuff that yields uh, amino acids, acetate, and pyruvate. Um, pyruvate, by the way, is like one step removed from the Krebs cycle. It's like, or it's like the last step. It reacts, I think, with oxaloacetate to form citric acid. Yeah, so, yeah, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> 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 Have I bored everyone? Is there anyone fucking listening to the podcast still? <laughs> Jesus, I'm here. So these are it's just you and me and my mom is listening to the podcast. The oh not. God, your mom listens to the podcast. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Mrs. Morrison. I tried to dissuade Chuck of this, but he, but he would not have it. That, that is highly unlikely that she actually listens to the podcast. So it's just you and me, Matt. I still feel ashamed now, though. So these <laughs> reactions, while interesting, don't get us to the closed metabolic cycle that kind of recreates its reactants and, and, and can continue spinning. But it turns out that the Krebs cycle can run in the opposite direction. So... Um, instead of stripping, taking a large organic molecule and stripping it down and making various smaller organic molecules, it can go and, and, and yielding energy. It can go in the reverse. It can build up from smaller organic molecules 
to larger organic molecules, but it requires energy. So the two carbon acetate plus carbon dioxide yields pyruvate. You add that to carbon dioxide and that yields oxaloacetate uh, and so on and so forth. So until you get to citric acid. Then it breaks apart into acetate and oxaloacetate, and that goes into two more cycles, right? So at every turn of this reverse citric acid cycle, it splits into two, and you get two more cycles. And so that's how you keep kind of driving the cycles, right? Right. Now, wasn't – yeah? Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, wasn't uh, – this is kind of off to the side, but wasn't Karl Popper – wasn't he a supporter of uh, the iron sulfur world theory? He was. Supporter of Gunter. Where have I heard that name before? Karl Popper. Don't the creationists like Popper for some reason? Uh, Popper's a philosophy of science, a philosopher of science who uh, was a proponent of the logical positivism. So where where instead of trying to prove something is true, what you're actually trying to do is see which hypotheses fail to be falsified. So why do, why do I hear Popper come up with creationists? Creationists like Karl Popper because uh, somewhere in the middle of his career, he thought that uh, natural selection and evolution was a tautology and so was could never be proven false. And so uh. it wasn't actually science. It was uh, a metaphysical notion. And he, he thought it was a useful metaphysical notion, actually, but um, – he nevertheless thought it was you know couldn't be falsified, so therefore it's not science. He reversed himself later on, but creationists will never tell you that. Aha! All right. So yeah, Karl Popper did um, support Gunter Vectorshäuser, but I'm not, unsure whether he supported him because his name was so fucking cool, or understood the science behind it. All right. But yeah, as we all know, scientists are like, woohoo! Thanks, philosophers of science, for supporting my theory. Fucking worthless. <laughs> Popper. So every step in the citric acid cycle, uh, as I said, was catalyzed by highly specific proteins, right? So they promote that specific reaction and prevent uh, their um, reactions from degrading in the side products and causing side reactions. Um, without proteins to catalyze the steps, it's, it's tough to see how this reaction could have ever got started. But Vectorshäuser <clears throat> has a solution to this. Which is? He points out that Inside of most of these proteins is a core of iron, nickel, or sulfur atoms, which look suspiciously like the tiny crystals of iron, nickel, or sulfur minerals found on the inside of hydrothermal vents. Uh It's possible that those atoms themselves worked as catalysts in ancient times, just far less efficiently than their modern counterparts. But you don't need to be efficient when you don't have any competition, right? Right. Doesn't matter how how efficient you are, if you just drive those reactions, you got no other competing cycles, really. So uh a final insight Vector Heuser had was that water, which is H2O, could be replaced inside hydrothermal vents with hydrogen sulfide, which is H2S. So so if you look at the periodic table, sulfur is right underneath oxygen. So it has much of the same properties, except that it's far more reactive. But Chuck Yes. All, all these early organic molecules in the early Earth would have just been destroyed in the early atmosphere. Well, we're talking about hydrothermal vents, so we're not even talking about the early atmosphere anymore. We're deep inside the ocean floor right now. Yeah. So fuck creationists and their atmospheric counterarguments. <laughs> 
these reactions that he proposes with hydrogen sulfide, um, I don't think have been replicated in the lab because hydrogen sulfide is lethal. <laughs> so I'm not sure who wants to uh, experiment on that. You just wear a mask or something. So these hydrothermal vents, Matt, um, as the as the gases kind of escape from the ocean floor, they cause all of these channels to kind of pour themselves through rock. Uh, these channels then are lined by nickel, iron, sulfur, uh, and some of them have the same diameter as human cells. So what? it is possible that these series of metabolic reactions, this, this early Krebs cycle, occurred inside these tiny channels uh, and then were released into the um, ocean. It's very difficult to get reactions. You know, you know Darwin's warm little pond hypothesis or Stanley Miller's experiment with the um, creating amino acids and, and putting uh, electricity into the atmosphere. It's hard to see how those ideas would translate into creation of life because there's no constant source of energy, right? Hydrothermal vents have it. They've got that heat that's driving all these reactions. So although Miller uh, and his students kind of controlled the purse strings for all these scientific requirements, kind of actually held science back for a couple decades, um, eventually those theories fell by the wayside and they're replaced by other theories that kind of can continually drive these reactions. Yes, but in Star Trek The Next Generation, series finale, this is Star Trek, my You're right. You. Picard um, showed up uh, at the beginning of life, and it was a warm little pond. It was a warm little pond. And Q says, look at that. Nothing happens. Anyway, go watch that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the other, the other model is the genetics first model. All right. That's a bullshit model. I've never heard such crap. I don't know. What is so that? So for those of you <laughs> such as Matt who um, know absolutely zero science. I know important stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fundamental model of biology basically is that DNA is translated into RNA, which is then uh, used as a messenger template to make proteins, right? Oh, you're, you're telling me genetics came first? There's no way. My money is not on genetics first. Impossible. We'll we'll it's back ridiculous. up and just do some quick review, right? So, so DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, uh, is a double helix that kind of twists, right? The, the sides are formed by alternating sequence of sugar phosphate molecules, and the rungs of the ladder are formed by complementary bases, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. So A links with T, G links with C. So there's no limit to how many of these... Uh, Units you can add on, right? You can go on for billions of units. Uh, it's a very stable molecule. It's so stable that it requires a protein to unzip the helix. Uh, and then uh, when it's replicated, each of those strands make a new strand of DNA. All right, so to get at this information, DNA needs to be translated into, into useful molecules like proteins, right? Right. This requires the intermediate step of RNA. RNA is ribonucleic acid. Um, and it comes in three types, messenger RNA, ribosomal RNA, and transfer RNA. Nearly every organism shares the same genetic code. I think there are a few bacteria that have um, one or two differences, but uh, apart from that, everything from sponges to bacteria to trees to bananas to humans 
shares the same genetic code. You can actually take genes from humans and put it into like bacteria or yeast, and it'll produce the same product as it does in humans. So somehow you got to get from the combination of DNA bases into the proteins, right, that do all the useful work of the cell. So 20 amino acids are used to form proteins. So you need a combination of at least three DNA bases. If, if you had the, the language of the cell, if it was just one base to translate into proteins, well, you've only got four different bases, right? So that could only give you four different amino acids. If you have a combination of two bases then you would have 16, right? Four times four, four different combinations in the first one, four different combinations in the second one. Well, that doesn't quite get to our 20. So what you, you need that third DNA base to have a language of four times four times four, so 64 different possibilities to cover 20 amino acids. So that leads to the redundancy of the genetic code, right? More than one uh, of this three DNA bases code for the same amino acid. There's 61, actually, 61 codons and only three punctuations. So does that make sense? Got it. Oh, yeah. So you got 61, <laughs> 61 sets of uh, codons that code for 20 amino acids. So what's the difference between DNA and RNA? RNA is single-stranded as opposed to the double-stranded DNA. The sugar molecule is ribose instead of deoxyribose. And uracil replaces thymine. So there's no T in RNA. It's always a U. So what happens is a protein opens a segment of DNA. RNA nucleotides pair up because they're complementary as well uh, to DNA. And they form, uh, so, you know, you've got a gene, right? So the DNA unwinds, uh, RNA comes in and, and matches up there. And once it's finished, it kind of floats off. So you need now, you've got a, a RNA copy. You don't need to open it up. It's only single strand. So you need some uh, way of translating this RNA into a protein. How does that happen? Take it away, Matt. Uh, well, you just uh, line up your transfer RNA. Hey, uh, right on. <laughs> Anthropology score. All oh. right. So um, what happens is you have a transfer RNA. And transfer RNAs um, is a segment of RNA, this little twisty segment of RNA, that has uh, an amino acid on one end and three exposed bases on the other end. So they'll match up to um, parts of this messenger RNA strand, right? So if you line up transfer RNAs in, in this big line, then you're, you're lining up the base pairs on one end, but on the other end, you're, loading up, uh, you're lining up amino acids, and so they'll eventually make a protein. So what we need is some structure that, that helps this process along, and that's where ribosomal RNA comes in. So ribosomal RNA is a, a complex structure. It looks like two balls, one small ball and one larger ball. Or if you would like, balls. just imagine a, an ass with one glute that's bigger than the other. I like balls better. Balls is a better analogy. I mean, what have I said? <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to the RNA, there's about 50 different proteins in um, that ribosome. But... Uh, those proteins essentially are just structural. They don't, unlike pretty much everywhere else in the cell, they don't catalyze any reactions. The actual uh, work is really done by the RNA. So this messenger RNA fits in the groove between the two balls of the ribosome. Yeah, it it's, does. Uh, the messenger RNA is a long, hard, erect, throbbing molecule. <laughs> uh, 
Or now you're just being. Blamed. I'm not sure what the analogy is on that one, but it's a long, erect, hard molecule that fits into the groove Perhaps between the larger and the smaller balls. A rolling pin making donuts. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a um, you know those old stock tickers where that the the string would come out right and they're making messages. Oh so that's yeah. kind of what this thing looks like. Um, and then as the messenger RNA goes through that little groove, transfer RNAs come in and they fit into little grooves themselves. And so they'll line up to the messenger RNA and the amino acid will then snap into a line with the next amino acid until the protein is created. So um, modern cells have this complex interdependence between DNA, RNA, and proteins, right? DNA carries the information. But in order to get at that information, you need proteins and RNA. In order to make DNA, you need proteins. So how did this system evolve? It's a tautology. (laughs) (laughs) Thank thank you, Matthew Popper. A key insight came in the early 1980s when they discovered that certain lengths of RNA could catalyze biochemical reactions. So RNA could act like a protein to catalyze reactions, and these were called ribozymes. Oh, well, that's really convenient. So this idea was proposed, this RNA world hypothesis. So initially, it's theorized that RNA played all three key roles for the cell. RNA is just essentially single-stranded DNA. It carries genetic information just as well as uh, DNA does. So it carried uh, genetic information. RNA has been shown to self-replicate. It can catalyze its own replication. And uh, RNA also acts as uh, enzyme to catalyze biochemical reactions. So... The recent studies show that RNA itself and not any proteins in the ribosome carried out the key role. Uh, it acted as an enzyme that assembles amino acids. So that, that snapping together of amino acids, that's done by RNA. RNA strands also act as coenzymes in cooperation with proteins to promote certain reactions in the citric acid cycle, in that Krebs cycle, including the synthesis of citrate from oxaloacetate. That, that's done um, in cooperation with RNA and proteins. Uh, RNA can also act as a, a ribose switch that uh, changes shape depending on the environment, and so that switches certain genes on and off in the cell. So uh, at one point, and this almost had to happen, at one point there was no DNA. There was no not much in the way of proteins. It was all RNA. It did all of the processes. So that's, that's the RNA world. That's the genetics first. My... A gut feeling, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not a scientist, but my gut feeling is that metabolism came first. Uh, side reactions off of that uh, metabolic cycle inside the hydrothermal vents uh, acted to concentrate RNA molecules. And then that's when the RNA world took over. I totally agree with that. So when creationists scoff at, at how little we know about life's origins, you can either very carefully and patiently explain to them about the citric acid cycle uh, and uh, the creation of um, metabolic precursors in hydrothermal vents with the uh, iron-sulfur hypothesis of Gunter Vectorshuizer. You can talk about genetics first and and how RNA can uh, act as both uh, protein catalyst, uh, carrier of genetic information, uh, as well as catalyzing its own self-replication. Or you can just laugh in their face and say, Fuck you, asshole. I'm a goddamn scientist. <laughs> you can be honest. You can you can say 
You could say we don't actually know yet, but it's a work in progress. What we do know is that life does exist, has existed, began to exist, and we have we have a lot of science going back to that point. If you're going to say we don't know, and that's true, we don't know the specifics of it. I think we've worked out the general overarching sequence of events. It probably began in a hydrothermal vent. The Krebs cycle probably was catalyzed by sulfur and nickel and iron and built up slowly. That uh, inside those hydrothermal vents, probably uh, side reactions spun off into making ribonucleotides. Uh, and that probably led to the RNA world, which then uh, eventually led to DNA as a more stable molecule. Um, remember, lipids are self-forming. They, they uh, spontaneously form spheres in uh, watery environments. Um, if you're going to say, though, that we, we don't know the details, what should immediately follow is, and neither do you. Right. Your, uh, your idea is basically, your idea of how God created the universe is basically, it was magic. Unless you can give me a set of, a sequence of events, much like we've explained in this podcast, as to exactly how God created Adam, then what you're telling me is the life began by magic. Bing. So fuck you, asshole. Creationist. That also should immediately follow. <laughs> it depends if you want to get a drink with him later. <laughs> All right, so um, let's be done with science uh, for a while. Uh, if we have any listeners left, uh, if anyone actually made through that entire fucking high school chemistry course that I just gave, uh, <laughs> next episode is going to be on Mormon fundamentalism. Fuck yes! I've been waiting for that one. Oh, God damn it! Shit yeah, motherfucker. Mormons. Now, this is something I know lots about. I promise about. there will be little to no science in the next episode. Aw. Cross my heart. Will there be penises? Uh, I can guarantee at least two penises in the next podcast. <laughs> One might say two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have no idea why. <laughs> but one might. <laughs> one might. <laughs> Excellent. We will see you next time. Vagina. Yeah.